0: "'We wants it, we needs it, must have the precious. "'They stole it from us. "'Sneaky, little hobbitses. "'Wicked, tricksy, false,' said Gollum. "'Smeagol replied, "'No, not master.' "'Gollum said, "'Yes, precious, false. "'They will cheat you, hurt you, lie.' "'Smeagol said, master is my friend gollum said you don't have any friends nobody likes you recognize this quotes movie stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of talking pictures trivia welcome to talking pictures
1: trivia the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is...
2: Tom. KJ.
3: And I'm Chris.
1: For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Tom. Tom. Tell us about today's movie.
2: Today, we are going back to 2002 to continue our journey through Middle-earth with Peter Jackson's next installment, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Two Towers was released in theaters alongside Star Trek Nemesis, Gangs of New York, and Catch Me If You Can. Chris is our questioner today. Chris, what is The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, all about?
3: All right. After our D&D party called The Fellowship has been split into three groups and has lost one of its members, we're going to continue our journey and follow our main characters as they rally a forest to war, help save the race of man, and continue the long walk to Mordor, all happening in a brisk 180 minutes. Tom. If you had one word to describe *The Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers*,
0: what would it be? Iome. KJ. Isengard. Uh, actually, Minas Morgul. No, wait, wait, wait. Minas Tirith. But let's go, Baradur. Nick. Sadly, burden.
3: And my word would be middling.
2: Tom, what does your word mean? It's elfish for um, for dusk. Okay. Ah, great.
0: It's time for
3: question one. All right, about two thirds of the way through the movie, Faramir, who just so happens to be Boromir's brother, for those of you who are really into names, they capture the hobbits on their way to Mordor. Uh, the hobbits are being questioned by Faramir. Why are you here? What are you doing here? Where, what is your intentions? And he asks Sam, are you Frodo's bodyguard? What was Sam's response? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Tom, you were the last to lock in. So what do you think Sam's response to Farmer was?
2: I think he said, no, I'm his gardener.
3: KJ, what about you? Yeah, same. Gardener. Nick? I'm his gardener. All right. Well, this question was definitely worth one point for every one of you. <laughs> Good thing we started off with the softball there. Sam does indeed say that he is Frodo's gardener. The reason I bring this up is is because, A, that line makes me laugh every time I see it. But, B, it's because I thought this would be an adequate place to start with. This movie is about the race of men at least from my perspective. So the Fellowship is all about elves and introducing you to hobbits and introducing you to dwarves. This is really going to be the movie that introduces us to the man. And that's why I chose the word middling because the, mid, the the men, they're not as purely good as the elves. They're not as purely evil as the orcs. They're somewhere in the middle. And Faramir is one of those examples of a person who does something bad at the beginning, but then maybe redeems himself just like we of saw in the Fellowship. And I want you guys to maybe talk a little about that. What did you think about that concept or this movie as the movie of men?
2: I think it's a really good way to put it. I I hadn't thought of this movie specifically as the movie of men. I mean, this trilogy is about men inheriting the world. And now it's upon basically fallen, the fallen race, um, which is what men are, right? They're, They're the there's a sort of catholic vibe in this right men are the people with original sin of all the races and so now it's up to these people who are out of the garden uh, to use more catholic iconography uh or, or catholic myth rather um to show what they can do to show that they can redeem themselves through rule and good action uh, and there's something kind of wonderful in that but also there is a a passing away of myth and magic and we're moving from the era of myth into the maybe the era of um of romance you know to use kind of uh fry's language of the sort of cycles of storytelling so
0: tom i guess um i hadn't considered that are you considering the original sin the end of the second age there il Sildor's um, uh, when he doesn't destroy
2: the ring, is that? I I don't think it's I don't think it is linked to a particular thing in the way the Genesis story is. What I think we see is man is more or less juxtaposed against elves in this. Then yes, there's a, there's hobbits, there's uh, there's there's dwarfs, there's you know eighty species of orc or whatnot. But what we see is that men and elves have. particular relationship and it is elves who when they leave are giving over the world to men and elves seem to be more elevated they don't seem to make the same mistakes in terms of moral judgment that that men do um and i guess we could argue about that but i don't think it's i think it's a character of something i think it's a recognition that humans are flawed, as opposed to there being a specific original sin.
1: There's so many directions I can go right now, based on those initial premises. I do think there's some validity. And if you're going to go down that original sin path to Isildur's Bane and him keeping the ring, but now going into the different races, this movie does focus on man, but man is not the only one who was corrupted. So the dwarves have already kind of fallen. We didn't really talk about it, but anytime we're introduced to the dwarves, they were too greedy. They dug too deep and unearthed things that shouldn't have been unearthed. So they've already fallen. The elves hightail it out of here at the first sign of trouble. And this breaks into the book a little bit, but the elves never come to Helm's Deep. That is Hollywood, okay? So this movie would have even been more about man as a race, okay? The human race, because they're the ones doing the last stand. They're the ones fighting um, the armies of Isengard and they're the ones who are gonna fight the armies of Mordor directly. So I know I just branched off onto 20 different things, but I would say I agree with Chris's premise that this is a story about man, even more so than the movies present, but they were all flawed at some point, and if you go back past the Isildur's Bane to actually when all of those rings were given out to all of those races, that's, you could even say, that's when everyone said, oh, I can have power now. And that's where the corruption began. So you really could spin off in 20 directions if we want to go down that path.
2: But the, the people who become the ring rates are not the, is it eight dwarves who get rings and three elves? I
0: Think it's seven
2: for the dwarves. Seven dwarves. I know it's three elves. Um, but it's it's the men who become most corrupted.
0: But I think that's you're true.
2: right. Yeah. I, I you know, and I think that's that's part of this. The elves are actually able to handle the power. Um, but they also need to step away. They need to kind of become legend, right? They're present, they need to become legend so that man can can show his medal, but I, I do think you're also right nick that like the ring corrupts everyone and i think that's what's that's what's at stake is that either the age of man can come around or this sort of perpetual darkness right that no one can fight against so
1: in the end of this film faramir shows his quality We'll find out if man, the human race, will be able to show their quality by the end of the trilogy. I always just like that phrasing: <laughs> prove his quality.
0: <laughs> so I thought the choice to have the elves um, give man another chance at Helm's Deep was a very strange uh, change to the story because then men didn't stand on their own, they still needed help for Helm's Deep yeah i, I never, like the book better understood. sorry yeah yeah i agree i like the book better too i never quite understood why um either peter jackson or whoever um made that change to the story because the elves look cool
1: and they're <laughs> ethereal well what i was telling my wife when this happened i was like if i were those elves i would have held high out there too because they're immortal if you don't die in battle you live forever <laughs>
0: well and tom that's what i was gonna say to you the um The reason men seem to make mistakes over and over and over again is because they're mortal. So elves have a much longer memory. And that's why the Nine were so easily corrupted, because Sauron offered them immortality, which they don't normally have. I believe dwarves also have a longer lifespan. There's a common misconception that there
1: aren't dwarf women, but it's because they look like the men so much. It's It's the the beards.
2: beards.
3: (laughs) I don't want. To, I don't want to drag this question out too much longer. But to answer your question, like why the elves are there, uh, apparently the studio had requested Peter Jackson put Arwen into a, into connection with uh, Aragorn because that love story was kind of stagnant. You have the third part of the love interest when you have the uh, the the woman from Rohan, but that you didn't have Arwen. So there's actually footage of Arwen fighting at Helm's Deep with Aragorn because they wanted to have that connection. So that was. The elves had to go because Ar- because Arwen was going. And they took Arwen out and they kept the elves in just because I guess it was too ingrained at that point. But that's why they showed up. I agree with you completely that I think it would be better if it was just the humans. But it was actually a production movie. It was a movie reason why they actually showed up. It's time for Question 2. All right, for Question 2, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the movie. In fact, we're going to go to what they call the prologue of this movie not as grand as the first one but still a prologue indeed so as we're sweeping over some of the snow-capped mountains of New Zealand that are taking the stand in for middle earth we're hearing gandalf saying different things from the previous movie we're hearing frodo yell and scream and and be scared of orcs and then we get a replay of gandalf's fight with the balrog in in uh, as they're leaving the mines of moria uh, gandalf faces down with the balrog and says you shall not pass one of the famous lines from the fellowship of the ring And then, as the Balrog fell because the bridge had fallen, it catches Gandalf by the leg with one of its whips. What is Gandalf's last words to the Fellowship as they're leaving the Mines of Moria?
2: Locked in. Locked in.
3: Locked in. All right, KJ, you were last. What what was your answer to this one?
2: Fly, you fools.
3: Tom. Fly, you fools. And Nick. Fly, you fools. My questions apparently aren't challenging for you whatsoever because all three of you got this one as well. I felt like this was maybe a little bit of a a weak question because it kind of covers both movies, but I really wanted to talk about music and sound because we didn't talk about it last week in the fellowship. And this opening sequence... And the whole fall of the Balrog with Gandalf following him and kind of hitting him with his sword as they go, really elevated was really elevated because of the music. And I just wanted to get your guys' take on the score, the music, the sound editing, anything that you wanted to talk about relating to the the audio version of this uh, of this film.
0: So, audience, I have a confession. I watched. Well, let's start. We all have a confession. We recorded the Fellowship episode a few weeks ago and then due to scheduling we're doing this one now so i had watched the whole trilogy back then and i did not re-watch two towers for this now but what i did do was i listened to the whole soundtrack all the way through because i thought that is such a great experience i love the music in this trilogy and two towers is no exception right when they're on the Riddimark, i love all the that they add to this one as opposed to um fellowship but the the score is awesome and chris you picked a great scene to highlight the score because at first you're like you you say you're sweeping over the mountains you're hearing the music and the mountains are getting closer and closer and closer and then all of a sudden you're in them and you're right back into the epic middle earth um, from fellowship of the ring great intro great music it gets your heart pumping it jumps you back
1: into the action where you left off so it's a it's a wonderful transition It's tough to do in the beginning of a film, especially something as epic as this, to take a pause and then jump right back in.
2: Yeah, It was Howard Shore was the the composer who I think won an Oscar for this work. The music is, is interesting. It seems to draw from kind of Celtic sounds as well. And you have that kind of grand philharmonic sound too to these kind of opening scenes, but there's these sort of um, kind of Celtic touches that are that are placed in and especially in the end. Um, in terms of the sound design too, and I think that, you know, that's a, a great note to pick up on Chris. Uh, the sound design is really kind of varied. And I think of what makes this movie so much better than other kind of epics that that we've seen is that there's something sort of hypnotic to a lot of the scenes and we have that kind of telepathic scene between um Eowyn and Aragorn a lot of that is made with the sound with you know with the sound design the way the voices have that kind of whisper to them in those scenes that is at a great variety with uh let's say the the battle of Helm's Deep which is you know kind of present and visceral and guttural um Yeah, it's lovely. And also kind of bringing everybody back with those those little voices that sort of pop out of the mountains is, is very nice. It's an interesting problem too. How do you transition back? Because since all these movies were filmed at the same time as everybody and their mother knows, what makes these movies so different from let's say the Godfather films is that you're watching the same performance. It's not a new performance of an old character. It's the same damn performance you know uh and so when you watch all these movies together they kind of make more sense than watching them separately and i think that little in that little detail you picked up on chris is a great way to deal with the practicalities of having to divide up a, a 12-hour movie into units for your audience i don't know chris what do you think of the, the sound design since you brought it in
3: i i think it's awesome uh some of the like I, I like Nick have that gigantic box set that's got the 20 it's got you know it's a four hour movie and it's got 12 hours of extras that tell you everything you need to know about the movie I've Seen uh, every bit of it
1: every bit of it
3: and just just going through like I take for granted some of the etherealness of the elves and some of the different sounds they make Uh, and but you're right it puts you right in that scene and it, it gives the scene a magical quality when you hear them talking in that kind of like elvish talk and that that kind of ethereal whisper to it I found that This the last time I watched it, I actually watched it with the the extra scenes and I realized that I didn't know this that John Reese Davies, who's Gimli, he's also treebeard, and that they took his voice, they recorded it as him. This this is this is an interesting, like I found it interesting. I don't know about anybody else, but they took his voice and they recorded it. And he really didn't change his voice at all. But what they did was they made this baffled box out of wood. So basically it was a speaker that would blast into a wooden box that had different ba- baffling, uh, different uh, buffering uh, agents in it. And what they would do is they would play the the, the the voice track through it and record it as it came out the other end. And they said oh, that it gave cool. it more of like a wooden quality or like a wooden instrument quality. So they did that a couple, like two, three, four times. And John Rhys-Davies, who didn't really change his voice at all, turned into Treebeard because you were getting this like weird wooden resonant sound to it and so that was I'm sure other movies do things like that for exactly these purposes but to see it in this 12 hours of extra footage was was really fun
1: I must have known that um, over a decade ago and forgot it <laughs> <laughs> because I definitely watched that old, old behind the scenes
2: yeah it's man I, I think it's a uh, that's a great detail Chris <laughs> I didn't know I, I knew Jonathan Rhys-Davies voiced it I had no idea they did that thing with the um with with the wooden box, um, but I think that's maybe I, you guys could talk to this talk about this as well. But I think that's why we love this and also love the book, uh, even though the book is doing very different work from from the movies. They're both obsessed with details, like these things work through a cruel of detail. Um, and with this movie, it's it's production design, you know, that that kind of detail in the sound. With the book, it's you know, he he wrote like whatever. 17 languages or something in his little obsessive way but i think that's what makes both of these things so magical is that there's there's just it, it, it's so fine in its detail
3: yeah i think that's why peter jacks was such the right choice for this because he he puts that detail in even if it doesn't show up on screen so like there are carvings in the throne of faiden's uh throne room like his chair there are carvings of horses all over it because he's one of the horse lords you don't even see that when you're watching it on film except for the gigantic horse heads on top but they're there and the fact that you know they're there is what makes the movie deeper for me i guess
1: it feels like a real place even though it's fantasy especially i mean gosh what a what a advertisement for new zealand they're still banking on this they're they're still cashing checks off of Lord of the Rings vacations and, and sites that things were filmed. So, I mean, it, it, it really ingrains that sense of, of wonder and also mixes in reality. Like, you could be
3: there. All right, everybody. At the conclusion of round one, everybody happens to be tied with two points apiece. All right. Hopefully, in round two, we'll get some harder questions and some deviation amongst our scoreboards. Stick around. right and we're back for round number two before we get there though there's always one question but since the guest is actually quizzing today I figured we'd ask the entire panel what would be your quintessential sequel to the two towers regardless of the fact that there actually is one
2: I have an idea so what we have is a homeward bound style story featuring the Nazgul and a ring wraith. After the ring has been destroyed, the Nazgul and his ringwraith, now free from the power of the ring, decide to return home to where the Nazgul is from to see his parents once again. The ringwraith, restored to mortality, decides to go with the Nazgul on a grueling journey up north where they laugh, learn, love, and together realize the deeper things in life.
0: <laughs> Sounds good, but that's got to be a sequel to Return to the King, Tom. We can't use that here. The audience hasn't. The See, ring hasn't been destroyed.
3: Spoiler alert, Tom. The ring gets destroyed.
1: You <laughs> got the wrong Christ. movie.
2: Uh, that still goes. Would you like just sequel. to cut
1: and copy paste no, that No, no. no that's gonna be week?
2: that's gonna be the the sequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then next week, I'm gonna have another sequel
1: ready. Nice. So
2: nice. don't you. Don't that one's actually going to be a prequel. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to follow different people after after the fall of Sauron. So, you know, Treebeard was pretty cool. So I'm
0: imagining a movie where we we uh, try to figure out either what happened to the Entwives, but the whole thing is just Treebeard and another tree talking very slowly to each other for three and a half hours, and nothing actually happens. <laughs> There's a,
3: they're sitting at a, a coffee table in the in the forest, actually yeah. just discussing drinking tea. This, this,
2: this is basically waiting for Godot, starring trees. I wonder what we should do.
0: Oh, that's next.
3: That's the movie. It's two trees trying to figure out what to have for dinner that night. Oh, I I, <laughs> that's I, gonna be.
2: I also like the idea of. Um, Finding the Entwives and Treebeard having to do speed dating. So what he's got three years with at each table. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: I always thought it'd be cool to see. Now this is more. This is more of a serious answer. What if? Because these last two movies, we've had two human characters actually want the ring, in Boromir and Faramir. Like, what would happen if they actually took it? What would have happened if Boromir or Faramir took the ring? Would the would the would the outcome have been the same, or would it have been the fall of man? In the end,
1: I, I like that.
3: I like that alternative
1: reality type movie. It's
3: like a Marvel "What If." Yes,
1: yes. I think he would just take the
0: place of <sighs> Sauron. He'd become like yeah. Sauron I think those, yeah. I think he'd things. take. The... I don't. Yeah. I don't think yeah. you
2: can. I don't think man can rule the ring. Only Sauron can. So right, isn't the idea that the ring eventually ruins you, and it, on its way back to Sauron? Right, but what is Sauron at this point like? He'd be you know, like Sauron the puppet. Takes over the body, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah he'd be like yeah. the puppet. Oh, if, if Sauron was dead? No,
1: Sauron um inhabits his body. Like possession.
2: Oh, I see. A sort of uh th- what happens to Theoden type thing.
1: Yes, but stronger. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> it would more be Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: It's just his corporeal form. Hmm. So my sequel is gonna be another fan favorite for the arborists out there, but it'll only make sense if you've either read the book or have seen the extended edition. I want a comprehensive background and knowledge of the wandering forest that can actually move, especially since now it has a taste for orc blood. So I think it's been, this might actually be a horror film, Uh, It starts off with gentle beginnings and then thirst for vengeance. So the trees may wander deeper into Mordor for some snacks.
2: Mm. So we we have three different genres. We have like an animal movie. We have an existential comedy. And then we have a zombie film Mm. starring trees.
3: It's time for question three. Mary and Pippin end up in Farragon Forest with Treebeard as their kind of like liaison to the trees. Uh the trees have a little conference and pretty much say that they're not going to get involved in the war as it as it stands. But Mary and Pippin have other plans. How do Mary and Pippin actually get the trees or the Ents to go to war? Locked,
2: Locked in. in.
0: Locked in, but it's a long answer, so I can't imagine it's right. <laughs> it's not a long answer, KJ. <laughs> Yes, and it's really
1: probably you just
2: right. have to say it like <laughs> this. It will take me the rest of the show
0: to answer. <laughs> We've decided you're not orcs.
3: <laughs> Alright, KJ. while you're at it, why how did Mary and Pippin get the Ents to go to war?
0: Alright, so Mary and Pippin after the Ents decide not to go to war. They request they be brought to Isengard. Um, I think Pippin has a pretty funny line about being closer to danger is safer than... um. So Treebeard walks, I believe it's south, because he says it feels like it's walking downhill somehow. Uh, And they get to the edge of Isengard, and Treebeard has his breakdown. He's like, these trees were my friends. Um, So Merry and Pippin show Treebeard Isengard and its current state, and that's what gets the Ents to go to war.
1: Nick, what about you? Man, I don't really feel like saying all that again, but I, I'll I'll give you a shorter version. Pippin convinces him the safe way home is to go south right near Isengard because he won't expect them there. And he sees the devastation that Saruman put on the lands and he knows a wizard should have known better.
3: And Tom,
2: what do you think? I have basically the same thing. I think it's Pippin who's... Uh, says that we should go south because, um, basically, if we go south, then Saruman won't expect it. That's kind of the, the lie he puts forward that he won't expect us being so close. Um, and and Mary doesn't know what that what he's talking about or what he's doing. And he says, uh, you know, we'll we'll be caught for sure. And he's like, no, we won't. And so they go south. And tribute has that line. I like going south. It feels like we're going downhill, um, and then he sees that the forest has been devastated, and some of these trees were my friends. Um, and then he just kind of yells, and all the trees come out, and and they're ready to they're ready to go to town.
3: Well, I, I, once again, my questions are too elementary for the Lord of the Rings scholars that are on the show. Uh, they are, you're all correct. You're all going to get the full two points. It was, I would, I would have simply taken the heat, to ask them to go south. That would have been enough for me. I would have That's what I that. thought until KJ
1: started like explaining the whole
0: scene. But, <laughs> but yes, don't it, you
2: it, like doing the voice? <laughs> it's
0: one of my favorite things
2: to do.
3: So yeah, so originally, and the Ent was taking, uh, Treebeard was taking the hobbits back west so they could go back to Hobbiton, and I don't remember if it was Merry or Pippin actually suggested they go south because they wanted Pippin. to show Pippin. the Pippin. devastation. Uh, mm-hmm. I have made, the, I asked this question because I felt like this movie. I think Tom talked about it a little bit in the last episode with the Fellowship, but the idea of like the industrial revolution versus the natural world. I feel like this movie really kind of epitomize that specifically with how Sauron or I should say Saruman was using the he actually says the machines of war to kind of like make the war machine to make the orakai to make all of the the ballistas and everything I just wanted to want you guys to maybe chime in a little bit about like modernism or in the industrial revolution versus the natural world and maybe what Tolkien was trying to get across with these
2: this is explicitly um from from the book and also from Tolkien's own reflections which is war as a devastator of the environment right he saw world war 1 which is you know the embodiment of all things that are negative and modern and you know modernism 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 um and this scene especially uh, it, it, which is also in the book is that it's this idea of the modern war as being industrial and sort of raping the natural world which is which is how he saw what world war 1 was which you know he's not entirely wrong i mean there's parts of belgium and parts of france that you literally cannot walk in because of world war 1 because there's so many so many like missiles and, and explosives that are still under the ground um And I think that's when you see that even contemporary, like in the battle of the Somme, that land, which is still disformed, disfigured from a war that's been over for for more than a hundred years, you could kind of see the inspiration for uh, what Saruman is doing, which is destroying the natural world in order to create war. And you saw him, I believe I could be wrong about this, making the Orakai. Right, which is also kind of a deformity of nature and kind of reflects on our, our conversation about Frankenstein that we had a, a few weeks ago in one of our episodes. Um, you know, th- there's something entirely unnatural about how Saruman operates in this world. And it seems to be through, um, through mechanization.
0: One of my favorite things about the whole, um, the Ents coming to Isengard is there's a, a brief moment where you see Gandalf the White kind of look like Gandalf the Grey. Um, and he kind of mentions, I, I forget if they ask him, like, where's Merry and Pippin? And, and he gets this smirk on his face, like uh, something like, they are, they are the pebbles that are bringing the avalanche. or You know, he knows that because Merry and Pippin are in those woods, the trees are going to march onto Isengard. I'm not quite sure how he knows, but it's a brief moment where he, he really seems to enjoy that, whereas Gandalf the White doesn't seem to enjoy very much at all. But Gandalf the Grey used to love stuff like that. So I kind of like that little moment.
1: When you were bringing up a small part of the scene when they're fighting back against Isengard, I thought you were going to bring up another minor detail. So there's this one end that unfortunately catches on fire. And I always find it quite satisfying when they break the dam and he jumps in the water. <laughs> I'm like, yes!
3: <laughs> going back to KJ's point, I, I always found it interesting watching it. Why? Why? Like... like Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, they're all in Fairyland far as where Merry and Pippin are, but they don't meet up. It's I think it's because Gandalf knows, you know, that they're there for a reason and they need to continue on their version of the quest. So I that was calling that was always one thing that I had to like write in for myself. I'm not sure if that's explicitly said to any in any any version, but that's it was always an interesting kind of like conundrum.
2: In the book, it's I believe Gandalf as Gandalf the White first appears to Merry and Pippin you know, in in the movie, they, they economize a little bit. Um, but that's interesting. That's also the far, yeah. Fangor forest is where Gandalf reappears, right. As the white. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a place of kind of rejuvenation or regrowth, regrowth of resurrection. It's a good place for him to, to come to. I didn't make that connection earlier. Um, yeah, it's also interesting in the book, the the ants actually are pretty fast about agreeing to <laughs> destroy Isengard. Um, actually either Mary or Pippin don't remember whom uh, even says, "Wow, you made decisions really fast, <laughs> which in order to um they they changed it in the movie because they're like, we need a conflict here. <laughs> we We need Mary and Pippin to have some agency and have some effect on this world as opposed to being, Uh, Just luggage, which I think is how Peter Jackson described them. It's time for question four.
3: During the Battle of Helm's Deep, the orakai and the orcs are getting ready to storm the main castle gate. Uh, Aragorn and Gimli actually go around the side in order to make kind of a pincer maneuver and Gimli goes against his character from Fellowship of the Ring and actually asks Aragorn to toss him across the chasm so that he and Aragorn can attack the Orcai from the flanks. Right before he is tossed across the chasm, what does Gimli say to Aragorn?
2: Locked
1: in. Locked in. Locked
3: in. Well, Nick, even though you were quick, you still weren't quicker than the other two. What does Gimli say to Aragorn prior to being
0: tossed to the uruk Don't tell the elf.
2: Don't tell the elf.
0: Don't tell the elf. Oh, I can't do it. Yep. Don't tell the elf. <laughs>
3: well, all three of you guys win the episode, and the quizzer is the loser today because you also <laughs> got this question absolutely correct. Bonus questions. Bonus. <laughs> I, I do have some bonus questions. Okay. So we'll, okay. We'll, we'll see if we can break the tie. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to those, let's talk a little bit. I, I thought it would be Remi. It would be. I thought it would be negligent if we didn't talk about the the Battle of Helm's Deep because it does take a good chunk of the end of the movie. But I also wanted to discuss a little bit, and I picked this quote specifically because in the first movie, Frodo and the the other hobbits were the comedic relief. I feel like Legolas and Gimli had to pick up some of that slack because all of the, the hobbit stuff is very earnest. And I just wanted to kind of highlight that, that this is kind of a change in character, the elf and the dwarfer, actually getting along and joking and things like that. So Battle of Helms Deep and also like a little bit of comedy that's there.
1: I want to say something, but I don't know if it's going to be a bonus question. So I'm going to wait. <laughs> it,
0: it, it's sacrilegious um, what they do to Gimli and, and Legolas like Legolas in this movie, but it works so well. It, it's it's great to watch. I, I, I thought it, I thought it was wonderful.
3: Mm-hmm. What do you mean by yeah. sa- can I, what do you mean by sacrilegious?
0: There? I was curious in the in the book they're 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 never comic relief they represent their races they're doing important things that dwarves can only do and elves can only do whereas as you pointed out in in two towers they are taking the spot of mary and pippin to give the audience something to to laugh about and and they're still effective during the battle sure but they are just comic relief in this
3: would you would you say that this is a better or worse in the the is the movie version of them being a little bit more comic reliefy better or worse in the book
0: i i think it's hard to compare because as i say it works so well in the movie it 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 ties the whole thing together i think if they tried to make them anything more the movie would have been too crowded and and may have fallen apart um so i don't think either is better or worse um i think they both fit their respective stories it's been a while since I've read the books, but they still do have a
1: camaraderie in the book, right?
0: Yes, absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: They do, but th- there isn't this, for example, Gimli is actually the best runner of the of the group. He can run faster for longer than everyone. And this, it's kind of like, dwarves are very fast over a short distance. You know, it's, it's like this kind of, um, he is sort of more of the butt of the joke, or even the thing with dwarves, women, not being recognized, you know, all all of that stuff is kind of in there. Um, there is a sort of animosity between the races, but there does not seem to be that animosity between those two characters in the book itself. Though I might have might have missed that. Um,
1: I think they grow out of it quickly. That's what I'm saying by camaraderie. Yeah, I like, think the, the, there's a mutual respect as they are traveling companions on this adventure.
2: Yeah, I mean the part of the problem with the book is that. They're not, therefore, as distinguished as characters. They're they're a little hard to picture, I think, than what we see here. And by giving them a sort of kind of buddy cop, opposites attract sort of thing, you you get very distinct ideas about these characters. Though I I have to say, speaking of Legolas, this is a, a tangent, but I watched this with a friend who, when she was growing up, um. Oh this is Margaret Margaret has been on the show before I watched it with Margaret Uh, uh, Always refer to Legolas as as the dumb one because he's always given the role of kind of saying out loud the plan that's already been established. So that's you get now that I've now that you told me that I I see it throughout the trilogy of Legolas is like oh so here's the plan I'm saying it out loud
0: yeah
1: but he also does a lot of blank staring too right
2: yeah and he's also blonde so it's just the whole stereotype works really well I think he's dreamy (laughs) yeah.
3: I, I do I do like the comic relief, though, because it does give that sense of camaraderie that I think Nick was alluding to, because everything is so truncated. We don't have time to have these big, long passages about how they're growing to be, to be kin with each other. They're growing to be close to each other, because in the Fellowship, they hate each other at, at first glance, like elves and dwarves. They just judge a book by its cover 101 there. And I feel like this at least tells me in a very, very quick and also entertaining way that they have grown over this long expanse of time that is only a couple hours for us, but has been months upon months for them. So I I did kind of like the comic relief in it. What about the entire battle itself? What did you guys think about that?
2: It, it's remarkable how much of the narrative of the battle you can you can notice, retain, and follow. Uh, and it's also that that beautiful design which comes from. Oh, I can't remember now the name of the uh, the artist who designed that.
3: I think his is designed... Alan Lee.
2: Thank you, Alan Lee. Very good. Alan Lee did the, the kind of art of the books in the 90s. He did them early on and then was brought into the film. And I think this is, Helm's Deep was the first set that was actually built and they did miniature films on, which helped them actually sell this movie. They were able to show these kind of, this set and these shots in order to get producers to, to get on board with this. But the, I mean, the battle, you can follow it very clearly, even though it is very long. Um, you can see the design of Helmsteep very clearly, how the orcs attack works. Uh, there's a lot of um, kind of uh, humor as well as tragedy in these battles, especially with our um, our elf friend who gets killed—that uh, that kind of stands in for the tragedy, even though I forgot his name right now. Um, so it is—it's—it's it's a like a remarkable little bit of work they do, and even things like the um, the the ladders that have the orcs on them, and watching those things go up or fall down is is really entertaining, even though I think most of that is even inside a computer. And it just makes you realize that actually the quality of CGI doesn't really matter that much. It's it's still how well you can tell a story. And my theory of of fight scenes is that there's sort of like dance choreography. Can we follow the actions and intentions of the dancer through the choreography? That's kind of base level or foundation. And I think that's true here. And it's it's, it's remarkably successful.
1: What was great about this whole sequence is that you could see the waves of the battle evolve. A lot of times in movies, you just see two masses come together, swords are in the air and there's some blood and maybe some decapitation, and then it's resolved. Here you could see the battle plan, just like Tom mentioned, the first part, although I'm not sure about the Olympic runner with the torch, but that's besides the point. You see the evolution of the plan, the outer wall is broken, the bigger ladders come in, like the whole thing, all the way back to they're stuck in the caves. So it's it's really cool to see every piece of this battle evolve until the end.
3: I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Alan Lee also worked with John Howe. The two of them worked together for all the designs for all of the uh all the films. So can't leave can't leave one of them out yeah i would also argue that i don't know i don't know how even if you've seen the hobbit trilogy i don't know if you're ever going to do the hobbit trilogy as episodes but i i would argue that this battle at helms deep is actually better than the battle of five armies in the hobbit movie which comes out after this so peter jackson had learned how to do it here does another big battle scene later in another movie 10 years later and i i think this one was better honestly
1: it's been a while since I've seen it. I did see all the, the new ones, but I only one watched them like one time. So I haven't really, so I really don't have a vivid remembrance right. of it. But that is telling in it itself, right?
2: <laughs> what did you like especially about this, Chris, design or, or battle-wise?
3: I just thought it was a really cool way to capstone this movie. Uh, I don't think that this movie had a really good beginning, middle, and end. At, but I, I, let me let me rephrase that. I don't think that the two towers, the book has a really good beginning, middle and end. And I think that they had to find a way to make as a movie that being Peter Jackson, Philip LeBron, like they all had to find a way to make a beginning and middle and end so that the audience member could come in happy and leave happy, even though it's the second movie in a trilogy. And I think the Helm's Deep fight was a really good capstone that made it an entertaining and fulfilling ending. While still not answering the really overarching plot questions of where the ring's going and all the other all the other things. So I I did like it in that fashion. And I thought it was just a really well shot, really well shot fight sequence. It's time for a bonus question. Going back to the Battle of Helm's Deep, when does Gandalf show
2: up? Locked in. Oh,
0: it's specific.
2: Oh, is it a specific time?
0: Locked in, but I my count might be off locked in all right
3: nick what do you got
2: if it's
1: not specific it's dawn but i believe it was
0: dawn on the oh gosh third day look for me on the dawn of the third day no wait wait, wait. look for me at first light of the third day dawn first light i'm not sure yeah yeah, yeah. what about you tom
2: i i had i had dawn also um I didn't remember which day it was.
3: Now you guys have me questioning my notes here. Cause I thought it was dawn of the fifth day.
1: I didn't, I was going to say it him. was
3: definitely first light dawn of the fifth day.
2: That's a
0: long time.
3: <laughs> yeah. <so clears throat> they're they're fighting the wall. I think he's counting from when they leave, when they depart. So Gandalf leaves uh Rohan to go and, and find the riders and then they're marching to Helm's deep. So we're assuming that the Helm's deep marches four days. They get there. And then it's that one long night they have to get themselves through to get to the fifth day. I think it is the fifth day.
1: I was either gonna say third or fifth. Although if you're just taking Dawn, we all got it. And then we move on to another bonus question.
3: Well, we're still moving on to a bonus question, yeah. but none of you got it. That's none of got talking. it. Okay. <laughs> it
1: was the fifth day. Okay.
3: It's time for a bonus question. All right. So let's uh let's go to the very end of the movie. What is the last line of the movie?
2: Oh, locked in.
1: By a character or voiceover?
3: It's by a character.
0: <laughs> Sound like me. Um <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna lock in with a, a long answer. I think I have the spirit of the question, but I don't think I have the um the words.
1: I'm gonna also lock in. Something to the effect of come on hobbits this way.
0: Tell me more about Sam, Dad. I want to hear about him <laughs> and his adventures. <laughs>
2: uh something like it was definitely smeagol but it was something like yeah Senior precious will be ours come along come along something like that
3: ah uh, this is a tough one because nick and nick and tom you're on the right track but he actually mm. says follow me it, it it is gollum that says it he says this follow, way. Me. Yeah. This
2: way,
0: follow me
2: yeah follow me yeah i remember like it ends on the double speak on the split personality thing
0: it's time for a bonus question.
3: What is the last visual that we see before we fade to the credits?
2: Locked in. Oh, locked in. Is it a
0: red falcon again? Um, locked in. What do you got, KJ? I'm going to say
2: um dor I thought it was Barad-Dor. It's the eye tower and also the, um, the Mount Doom. You right? can I see both of those.
1: They start by going up the stairs of Minas Morgul and over to see Mount Doom and the Eye atop his tower in the distance.
3: All right, unlike the last question, all three of you have this one correct. I have uh, one more tiebreaker, and if we can't break the tie with this one, then I'm the loser, I guess. Uh, this the is Eye a tough... gives
0: a wink, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, eye, a
3: little wink to the audience. It's time for
0: a bonus question.
3: How many times do we see Smeagol save Frodo? Price is right rules? Sure, price is right rules.
2: I'm going to lock in, though I can't think of the individual instances.
0: Locked in, but I can only think of one, so I'm just going to pick a number a little higher than one. Locked in. What do you got, Nick? I have zero in this film. KJ? I'm going to go two, because I'm pretty sure the... They walk through the swamp and don't look into the lights. I thought that was two towers, but could have been Return of the King. I'm going to go with two. Tom?
2: I also had two. Sorry, KJ. (laughs) No,
0: that's good. That means unless Nick's got it, we keep going. (laughs) All right.
3: So we've broken the tie a little bit. But Tom and KJ are still tied because the answer <laughs> is indeed two. He, you're absolutely correct. He saves them at the swamp. He actually pulls Frodo out that's from that was the, the, seeing the dead people in the swamp, and he also saves them from going into the black gate. So they were going to they were going to run into the black gate following. Oh, the that's marching right. Yeah yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually yeah. grabs both of them by the collars and says, "Don't go that way. Let's go this way," mm-hmm. which can be assumed as he is saving them. You sure
1: you don't have bonus five?
3: That was that was the last one I had written down. All right, here's how we'll break the tie: Tom and KJ. No, we usually
1: do everyone, even a loser like me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
3: uh, we do. All right, all right. So here's here is here's here's another one that we'll that we'll do. Uh, one of the things I wanted to put in the movie rant that we'll make into a question at least somehow is that this movie really highlights a lot of Dungeons and Dragons tropes. Last episode we talked in the Fellowship how. Gary Gygax was very influenced by D&D, or influenced by this movie when creating D&D. And they actually bring up a lot of different things, like I'm not looking for specific names of spells, of course, but like a lot of things that are typical of elves or dwarves or wizards in this movie are on the screen for the first time that translate directly to Dungeons & Dragons. So how about we go like around... And the first person will, will kind of go until somebody misses it and then we'll kind of eliminate somebody like that does that make does that make
0: sense yeah but chris do you remember tom's character last time we played dmd <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if we want tom to start <laughs> bringing up these things <laughs> all right i got one i got one i got one the title of this movie is a two towers which two towers are they referring to
2: oh i know locked in
0: that's a trick question yeah mm-hmm. exactly so then i think tom yeah. What are you locked in with?
2: I'm locked in with uh, Barador and is it Orthonic? So I'm going to take the episode because I don't think it's defined. I think it's. It's no. Isengard. No, 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 yeah. no. I, I think it, Peter, it actually is defined. Peter Jackson did I think sad. Peter Jackson
3: defined oh, Peter it as Jackson. Isengard. Okay. He, because okay. This, is a yeah. mo- this is about the movie. So I think yeah. Peter yep. Jackson yep. is yep. defining yep. it as, as uh, Isengard orthonic. and Barador.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But Orth- I, I, orthonic is isengard barador is the eye but the book it's two different ones it's um it's orthonic and then it is a tower where the nazgul live it's actually a different oh, tower
0: Oh, makes a lot that. more sense actually i like that
2: yeah yeah there's a so peter jackson did intentionally change what the what the two towers were so Chris, I it, you know you're you're the host, but I'd give it to Tom. That was a pretty well actually.
0: Okay,
1: if <laughs> if I want to bow out of this one, I can give a tiebreaker.
0: Sure, let's
2: hear yeah, it. Go for it.
1: Okay, how many kills in the scene of Helms Deep did Gimli have?
2: Forty-seven. All right, locked in. If you uh, guys don't get it, then I win. <laughs> how does that, that work. <laughs> Um, I, did you lock in top? I did, yeah, I locked in first. I actually said my answer, too. Okay, KJ. Uh, 48? I have no idea. I thought in the book it was 46-47 with Gimli at 47. I think that's the same in the movie, but now I'm getting them mixed up. Well, you're both wrong. Um, Legolas had 42,
1: Gimli had 43, and then Legolas shoots the twitching orc that Gimli is sitting on saying it's now tied at 43 although Gimli's axe was in his brain which is why he was twitching
3: was this from the extended cut because I watched the theatrical today and I don't remember that part oh no
1: then maybe it was extended
3: I because I I would I would have loved to have used that thing but I never I remember there being a scene like you describing of them actually counting down what their deaths are what their death numbers are but I, it wasn't. It wasn't in the theatrical I did, version. I
1: did watch the extended edition, so I may have just biased this whole episode.
0: And the original he only gets forty one kills. Yeah, I'd say let's give the episode to Nick, right? Are you alright with that, Tom?
1: Oh, I don't care.
3: I
0: really yeah, don't care. Sure.
1: No,
3: no, well, no, I, I, I think that all three of you should get the episode. And as the <laughs> quizzer, I think I get perfect. final say. So you do. The you three do. of you guys have a perfect score, except you didn't know what the last line was, so we're gonna we're gonna put a little asterisk next to it. But otherwise, <laughs> good job, fellas.
1: To be fair, I think we all had a, a commendable uh, performance today uh
3: with two towers. It's time for Movie rant. All right. So the only thing that I wanted to talk about in movie rant that we haven't talked about already was the like the resurrection of Gandalf. So you see him come from Gandalf the Grey. He obviously is supposedly have died when he fights the Balrog and he's re-resurrected as Gandalf the White. I always found it very interesting that when Aragorn first addresses him as Gandalf, he actually doesn't remember what his name is. Like, he actually has this kind of epiphany. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what they called me. And I was just, what do you guys think about that scene? Because that always kind of confused me a little bit. They keep that scene very ambiguous. Even from the part of being
1: reborn, from somehow falling so deep that you're at the top of a mountain. Like, that whole sequence, even early on to this rebirth or being reborn always kind of confused me a bit, but I think that's intentional because that's the mystic that's, we just like them cannot understand what happened. So I, I guess I always give them a pass.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it also connects to the forest to, you know, this is, the, this is the place of rebirth or new life. He's also taking on the role now of the white, so of the guardian and of the leader. Um, it is interesting that he, sort of forgets who he is and there is something very kind of christ-like and i mean obviously it's a connection to to christ uh a a lot of this you know relies on that kind of mythological imagery but there is something different about christ when he returns when he reappears to everyone he's not exactly what he was before he's become something more and people often don't recognize that is what they used to call me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> indeed I, I, that's one of the Gnostic Gospels
3: <laughs> I thought I remember reading somewhere and I, that's why I was kind of bringing this question up But like you guys could maybe refresh my memory if you read it that apparently the the Middle Earth always has to have a white wizard so like they all have these like different roles that they play. So Radagast is the is the brown wizard, and Saruman is the white wizard, and Gandalf is the gray. And they all play their own parts. There's actually two blue wizards too that are never in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And then like when, obvi- like what I took from it after hearing that small little snippet was that Gandalf had to take the mantle of the white wizard because Saruman had fallen, like fallen into in league with the bad people, in league with Sauron. And I just, I, that's what I was trying to interpret. I, I have no idea if that's true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't remember where I read it or where I heard it from, but I was just curious if any of you had ever heard that interpretation. There always had to be a white wizard. So that's why Gandalf was actually resurrected and brought back because he's some mm-hmm. magical, mystical being.
0: So if the Lord of the Rings is the history of England, who's the current white wizard? I
3: know you told us
1: that last <laughs> time. I'm still not <laughs> buying into it. Like, even if it's right. It just kind
2: of takes me out of the fantasy.
1: That's the only thing. You use that word. History.
2: You use that word. History,
3: KJ. I know. You use
2: I that word. <laughs> I, well, one thing I'm I'm looking now because I don't know if there always has to be a white wizard. I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> it's Sean Connery. There can only be one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I could tell you that like it's there's there's five wizards in um in lord of the rings and so a few of them you just never see and they're also all of this they're all valar right they're all the same species that sauron is um in the book it's interesting there isn't any av- actual evidence in the book that saruman is in league with sauron right he, he's never actually in communication with him in the book is that
1: true i don't <laughs> remember i mean it's been a yeah. long time since i read we I don't know, have in the movie he's definitely in constant
2: in, 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 in the movie he's in league with him in the book it's he's kind of building up his own army and it's indicated that he's potentially trying to do his own thing trying to violate the world in his own way um but i yeah i'm trying Does to is that I, factor
1: in interpretation i'm kind of that, that's when very I, foreign from my re- recollection. That's the only reason.
2: That's I- typically how it's read: is that we don't actually have the evidence that Saruman is working with Sauron in the book, though they they make that explicit in the movie. Oh, they're they're. I'm sorry, they're not Valar; they're Maiar. The Wizards are Maiar, like because Tolkien. I think we've brought this up a lot. Is is a Roman Catholic. And these stories, according to Tolkien, have these kind of Catholic themes in them. They're not allegorical, I don't think in any way, but they do have um, those kind of things of, of kind of resurrection and rebirth and uh, inheritance, right? And Gandalf is that leader who saves mankind, who takes a sacrifice upon himself, right? He dies so that the, the fellowship can continue right? And he meets the darkness in the, in the depth. He goes all the way down with the Balrog to things that are so evil that even Sauron does not know about them. They predate Sauron. And so there is the, the sort of sacrifice that he takes upon himself. And in so doing, he has to see this evil and return to, to kind of save the day. But even then at the end, he has to you know move out just as the elves do.
1: This is jogging my memory a little bit. I think I'm just so biased because I've seen the movies so much more than I've I've read the book or, or haven't read the book in a very long time. You're right. I think he did kind of just think he could kind of do it on his own, but eventually gets corrupted. What I will say is forget congratulating any winners here today. I want to congratulate the questionnaire for bringing such a mm-hmm. strong trivia. We just well have done. seen this film a million times. <laughs> so Chris, well done. I can't mm-hmm. wait to see what you have in store for us next week for the conclusion of the trilogy.
3: Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot, Casa. I don't know if that's deserved but I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well done. Well
1: you done. made us feel smart, okay? We mm-hmm. got a lot of things right, mm-hmm. okay?
2: <laughs> Your brew was artisanal questionnaire.
1: <laughs> you can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We're extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. What do you think Tom's D&D character was? If you don't like that question, how do you feel about the elves showing up for the Battle of Helm's Deep? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679.
2: You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15 and check out our sister podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia, B-Side.
0: You can find me on Twitter at KJ10001000.
3: If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can always reach out to the boys at Talking Studios.
1: I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we see Frodo to the end in his next movie from 2003, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Tom, how was your watch?
2: I first saw this movie. This is the one of the three I know I initially saw in theaters. And I saw it actually with a common friend of ours who I'll I'll say his name off air. Um, Because... uh, uh, Suspenseful. (laughs) <laughs> well he, he didn't really like the movie very much clearly because he spent the whole time on his phone. Um, this is the early days of texting you oh, know boy. The, the, uh, uh, the the third age ended and the fourth age began during the watching of this film, and texting went into, into <laughs> vogue um, I always said the second one was my favorite. I think after watching this again and I did watch it on my computer like a you know, like a heathen or, or whatever people who watch movies on their computers are accused of being I will say I think this is my favorite of the three now which is not my opinion going in and I'd like to explore that I think the movie coordinates different events in different um, in different spaces really really well I think like for example scenes of people dying or being threatened with death in those different plots all kind of happen at the same time and it creates a real kind of continuum of ways in which this project looks at at death and the fall of certain heroes and that type of thing Um, and I thought I, I hadn't really noticed that when I first saw it in whatever it came out, 2004, 2002, 2003, <laughs> 2003, yeah, in, in the theaters, I didn't, I didn't notice how carefully the, these different scenes were coordinated, and I was really kind of taken back by it, I really loved it. Chris, how was your first watch?
3: Well, not to sound like it broke a broke record, but, but this was once again a movie that I saw in the theaters in my, in my college years, and uh, just like the other two, I really like it. I don't think it's my favorite, but I definitely enjoy sitting down and seeing it. I enjoy the, fi- the the conclusion of it. I enjoy the finality of it. And I think they ended on a really good place. Uh, and honestly, I just really like it. Like there's not too much else to say. We've talked about these movies quite a bit. So I'm just going to end it there. KJ, what about you? What about your first impression?
0: So at I, I first I thought, oh, I don't remember seeing this in theaters. But now that I'm thinking back, I went. it was sophomore year of college and I went with a bunch of um, students from the Progressive Student Alliance. And they had a lot to say about the movie not being um, progressive enough, which is a strange way to try to evaluate them. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings of all things. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, but this is probably my least favorite of the three. By the time we get to this movie, I, I still like being in Middle Earth, but we're it's just constantly wrapping things up. It, it's go, 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 go um i really liked the book i think in the book they explore some of faramir a little more i think the relationship between frodo and sam they have more time to to, to really capture that um but the, the thing i remember the most about this movie is um a guest of the show a friend of the show co-founder of the show doug loving legolas on the elephants the oily elephant. he 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 thought that was the coolest thing going um But yeah, I mean, audience, if you've watched the first two movies, you really should finish with the third here. How about you,
1: Nick? It's tough for me to break these down. I've mentioned this in in prior weeks. I see them almost as a collective. So if we're saying this movie versus that movie versus that, in my mind, they're just one giant movie. So I enjoy every single one of them. And specifically with this film, yes, it's a conclusion of a lot of things, but of course the one major pivotal moment in Mount Doom I love that moment. It's just, you know, again, we don't have to worry about spoilers. This movie's been out for a long time. But the way Gollum comes into play at that pivotal moment really gets me. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more next week.
3: I don't want to sound too emotional, but I actually shed a little tear this time, Last this time that I watched it, uh, which I don't think has ever happened for whatever reason. But this time it did. I guess I'm getting older. It hasn't
2: happened to Chris in Chris's history.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much true, but it it actually
2: happened this time. His cold heart melted (laughs) for our podcast.
1: The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King is available on HBO Max at the time of this recording.